Good morning and a very warm welcome to Heartlands here on Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill. Folks, it's great to have you with us and I hope that this broadcast finds you well. So, on Saturday the 23rd of September, Gene Watson held a concert at the Methodist Church in Tullamore and it was a full house and it was a wonderful evening and everyone who was there was blessed and I can honestly say, if you hadn't been, you missed but I also caught up with Jean to chat with her about her story before she headed on for Castlebar the next day for her next concert. So as you all know, I love to ask folk three questions regarding their faith in Christ. And those questions are as follows. What was life like before they accepted Christ as their saviour? What circumstances led them to accepting Christ? And what has life been like since? So, Jean, you are very welcome to our show here today, and thank you for joining me for this interview stroke conversation. Let's get the ball rolling. What was life like before you accepted Christ as your Savior? Right. I would say, like, getting to know Jesus was not a one-time event. This was a process that began from early childhood. I was raised, actually, in the Episcopal Church, which would be Church of England in the United States, and... So in that environment, I felt like I was always aware of the presence of God. Like I knew what the holiness of God felt like in that sanctuary. And, and we were really taught a reverence for God. And so that's the way I knew God as the Holy of Holies that, that we worshiped from afar, but I knew he was real. And then there was a whole process as I grew up in the church and uh, the Lord began to speak to me even as a teenager working as an acolyte in the church, lighting the candles, I felt like I was beginning to hear his voice. What I believed was the voice of God. And again, it's all very distant and not personal, but I know it's real and it's holy. And so I had a sense of um, calling on my life from that time that this holy thing out there, as I imagined in space somewhere, wanted a relationship with me. So around that time, I got invited to a youth Bible study in an organization called Young Life. And it was a, actually an English teacher in my high school that invited me to come along to this Bible study. And it was there early in the morning before school that they started talking about a relationship with God and the gospel about, you know, you can give your life to Christ. You can hear his voice and and have him fulfill his plan for you. Well, I wanted that. I thought, oh, well, I didn't know that I could have a relationship with this God that I've been worshiping. You know, how exciting is that? So I was like, sure, I'm down for that. That's great. And said, yes. But, you know, at, at that point, I don't even remember that date. It was just, you know, it was just sort of an invitation. Now, looking back, I think of it as sort of when you get engaged to your spouse, you say yes but you don't really know what you're committing to. <laughs> so then after that, you know, I, I um, graduated from school. I went to France for a year as an exchange student, came back and began music school to become a professional classical violinist. And, and it was at that point I, I really wanted to surrender my life completely. I was ready to say um, yes, not only to God, but to surrender do whatever he wanted to do with my life. And so it was in my sophomore year of university that I committed my life to Christ completely, said it doesn't belong to me anymore. I got baptized and 
I know the exact date and time, November 6, 1983, evening service, where God said, are you ready to give up the rights to yourself? And so, you know, it's such a process. I feel like God doesn't just meet you and say, oh, can I have your whole life? You know, I want to, you know, it's this process of you discovering what his love really is like, and you gain trust in that love and that those levels of surrender become deeper. So that was the point of full surrender and where the journey started. So that was the moment that Christ became Lord. Lord, absolutely, yes. That was the moment that he moved in your life from being Savior to being Lord of your life. And there's a big distinction between both. I think many people can spend years knowing Jesus as Savior, but not necessarily knowing him or living with him as the Lord of their lives. Yeah. Where did your journey take you from that moment? Not just in the spiritual, but also in the natural, so to speak. In normal, everyday living. What took place after that? Normal life. Well, as in all of things, all things, you know, life is a process of growing in wisdom and maturity. And the Lord lets us uh, find that way by making mistakes. And when he becomes Lord, it doesn't mean that he takes control and we're robots. It means that we learn to submit to his lordship every day. And so he let me choose the wrong things at times, even when I knew I was choosing the wrong. And uh, he allowed me to make some very poor decisions and choose not to follow him. And, uh, you know, he's very gracious that way because it's in making the mistakes that we 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 grow. <laughs> So I made some poor decisions, followed a path that wasn't God's will for my life. I, It's not that I walked away from him, but I definitely wasn't walking in obedience to him. And um, in that process, you know, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And it's true. You know, we live out the consequences of our choices. And so, um, so I'm, you know, to be specific, I married a man who was not following Christ, who was not a believer. And and it was just a train wreck. It was difficult. I, the, we, we stayed married. We had four children, traveled around the country for different jobs. But um, I really wasn't, I wasn't fruitful during that time in my life in a spiritual way um, because I wasn't able to. You know, I was living out the consequences of decisions that weren't God's best. So, and, and life was hard. It was painful. I had to... Uh, uh, I was in a position where I couldn't use music anymore. I stopped playing violin completely. I, I was a professional violinist at that point. Um, couldn't use my music. I didn't even know that, that I would sing one day. And so music was buried. And as I was just really in a, in a time of survival in my life, just surviving the circumstances that I'd chosen that were difficult. These were like the Joseph years <laughs> where I'm serving in Potiphar's house. I'm doing all kinds of things that don't feel like my calling, but that's, that's where I am. And I was really difficult, painful time and where I'm really beating myself up because I knew that I had chosen this. And so anyway, that journey ended up moving us to Southwest Michigan, which is where I live today. After two years in Michigan, the marriage ended in divorce. Finally, the train was wrecked and, family fell apart and I found myself as a single mother of four children. So this was a place I never thought I'd ever be. And now I'm not 
following God's calling on my life. I'm not playing music, doing anything creative. I'm living on government assistance, trying to pay my electric bill and feed my children and feeling a lot of shame and a lot of guilt because again, I'm the one that put myself there. I feel. And so I became very depressed, clinically depressed because there's a sense of hopelessness. Like I train wrecked my life and can't get it back on, (laughs) you know, all of the, dreams as a youth and the calling of God, you know, that was all burned up, I thought. So at this very low moment in my life, I cried out to God. I was lying in the bed one day, deeply depressed. And I said, uh, God, I'm just at zero and I need you to be my 100% God. I'm so sorry for what I made of my life. And I flipped open my Bible and I saw Psalm 116 verse four, which said, Oh God, save me. It was the prayer of David, and I prayed that prayer, Oh God, save me. Jean, let us pause there for a moment, and can you please introduce our first piece of music to us? My daughter, she's the youngest of my children, and she's got a real call for music on her life, but she's also a worshiper. So we were sitting in the living room one day, and she taught me to sing the Psalms, to just open the Bible, look at the words, and just sing whatever came. And so we were singing the Psalms one day in the living room, we opened up to Psalm 51, and she began to sing. It was the most beautiful melody. And I said, oh, we need to record that. It's really special. And so I took that recording. I added a chorus to it, which I wrote. And then I brought her down to Nashville, and we recorded it together. So this is actually her voice. This is my daughter, Catherine, and she's starting her own career right now as, as a singer. And so this is Psalm 51 with my daughter. Welcome back to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill, where my guest is Jean Watson, who played a concert here on the 23rd of September in the Methodist Church. Jean has been sharing her story with us, and before the break told us that she was suffering from depression, ended up being divorced from her husband, was left as a single mum of four children, then at her lowest point, while crying on her bed, She opened her Bible to Psalm 116, verse 4, and simply prayed the words, O Lord, save me. So, Jean, can you share with us what happened next? And at that moment, um, the phone rang, and I picked up the phone, and uh, there's a strange man's voice on the other end, and he said, Is your name, is this Jean Watson? So I almost hung it up because I thought it was a what we call telemarketer. And he says, is this Gene Watson that plays the violin? And I stopped. I was like, how does anybody know I play the violin? I haven't played the violin in many years. You know, I don't play anymore. And he says, I'm the concertmaster of the, the symphony. And I was in a restaurant last night and I overheard a conversation about a woman who had moved to Michigan who was trained as a professional violinist. And her name is Gene Watson. He said, now this is absolutely true. He said, I've been going through the phone book calling the Watsons till I found one that played the violin. And I thought, this is crazy. I just prayed this prayer. The phone rings and this man is asking for me. And that man asked if he could hear me play and eventually helped me get a position playing in a professional symphony orchestra. You know, what I was trained to do as a child is now handed to me. And I'm able to make money to support my family at night so I could be home with my children. It was a miracle. And I thought, that is that an answer to my prayer? And it was just the very beginning. This is just the door cracking open because 
that winter, my landlord came in the house dragging a, a beautiful Christmas tree for us um, as a gift. And when he walked in the door, he heard me singing Christmas carols on a recording I'd made for a friend. And he stopped in his tracks and he, he, he said, what is that? And I said, that's just a gift I made for a friend. He said, who's singing? He said, it's just me. He said, that's you. And I said, yeah. And he sat down on the couch and he just wept. He just cried. He put his head in his hands and he said, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but that's what you're supposed to be doing. And so uh, long story short, he gave me my rent money back. And he said, I want you to take your rent money and record. That's what you should be doing. And um, so I did. I began to sing, play, record, write music. And uh, again, very long story short, several years later, my music was heard in Europe. And I was invited to come tour England and share the story of how I cried out to God at my point of need. And he showed up, changed my life radically. And, and he did it all by himself for his glory. And then uh, it all spun out. After that, I kept recording and creating, and God was using my music to save, heal, and deliver people all over the world through a very broken vessel. And, you know, there's the gospel right there. It's, you know, he just, he'll, he'll come into anyone's life who will call upon him and use him to bring his kingdom, and all we have to do is ask. So speak to me about the depression. Yeah. So how long did it take the cloud to lift? Yeah, and that too was a process because we have to change, learn how to change our thinking because the depression that often is caused by, you know, just believing lies about ourselves rather than the truth of God's love and his forgiveness and his redemption and that we are still worthy even though we've screwed up, that he still loves us and, and um, being trained to replace those lies with truth. So it was definitely a process of healing that takes time because when we've been drinking from those wrong wells, it poisons the body, the mind, and the spirit. So it's definitely not snapping your fingers and things are better. It's a process of healing, you know, definitely over a period of years. And, and you know, and even now, it's all of us, we, none of us can, you know, until we get to heaven, we're, we're never completely whole, sozo, the Greek word for whole, but it's that process of, of being renewed day by day. And uh, so, but I would say in the first, in the first year, there was tremendous healing as I saw, as, you know, as I restored into the things that I loved to do that brought me so much joy, just playing music again and creating was renewing me and healing me as I was doing it. So, so you play with a, an orchestra. Yes. Or you did play with an orchestra. I still for, do. For, still do. Mm-hmm. Is it the same man? Yes. Well, he is no longer with the orchestra. But um, he helped open the door. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me as I was researching your website and your YouTube channel before you came here is the contact you have made with a lot of early Christian artists. Explain to us how that came about. I know if I mention names like the second chapter of Acts or Phil Kigi, those names won't mean a lot to our listeners, but they mean an awful lot to me because it goes right back to my Christian heritage and the music I was listening to growing up. So to meet someone who has played and recorded with these people is exciting for me. Tell us, how did that come about? It was God's favor. Uh, You know, originally I was recording in my hometown in in Michigan, and then um, 
God began to expand my dreams because I was just asking him for the little crumbs, like, Lord, can I just have enough money to make another little recording here in Michigan? Can I just have this? And and one day the Holy Spirit got a hold of me and said, why are you asking for crumbs? Am I not the God of the universe? What do you want? And so one day I said, okay, well, I would like to have an Irish producer. I want a full orchestra. I want the best musicians in the world. And I, you know, I want the money to be able to record on an international scale and just dream big and pray big. Why not? Why not? And so I'm, you know, the, you know, it started with a man named Johnny McCabe, who was the production assistant for Keith Getty. And I, he said he would help me. And so that my first big recording was done with all the Getty resources and they allowed me to use the orchestra and the, the Czech Republic. I had an orchestrator in London and a ranger in Belfast. Suddenly I had the best musicians in the world at my fingertips and the Lord provided the money. I don't remember how he just did. And I paid for it all in cash. And, you know, it was just surreal. Like, is this really happening? And then after that, I began uh, connecting with people down in Nashville and some of the Christian contemporary music, big producers, Don Cook produced a couple of albums. He was producing for a group called Avalon and, um, um, some major names. And, and so Don helped me learn, uh, to do things in an even more professional manner. And then I met a man named Billy Smiley, who was one of the founding members of a Christian rock group called White Heart back in the eighties and nineties. And, uh, Billy Smiley really helped. He was a connecting point. He knew everyone pretty soon. I just had to say a name and he'd say, right, I'll just call him up. Why not? So I got Michael W. Smith to accompany me. I met Michael W. Smith and he played with me on an album. Phil Kagey came along and we've recorded many times and anybody I wanted um, was there. And the Lord had given me a word years ago that um, Nashville, which is so intimidating because you've got all these celebrities and the Lord said, Nashville will serve you. Nashville will serve you. And they do. So here's little old me, little old nothing from this little lady that plays the violin from Michigan. And, you know, anything I want is I just ask. And then there's been many doors open for me. And it's God. You know, it's in the favor of God. Yeah. Wow. That's an amazing story. It's time for our next piece of music, Jean. Please introduce this next piece to us. Thank you. This is called Home, and I recorded it with Phil Kagey. He's playing his signature classical guitar, brilliant work on it. And it's just me playing the piano. It's, it's very simple, stripped back. I wrote this song during COVID, and COVID was a real trial of faith for me because everything I did that brought me a sense of worth and identity and value was suddenly gone. I couldn't do ministry, traveling, and so I had to learn again to go back to the Lord and find my value just as his beloved daughter. So I wrote this song called Home, and it just invites us to always remember that we should not find our value and our home in anything else but him. Midlands 183. Welcome back to Heartlands on Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill. And my guest today is Jean Watson. Jean held a concert in the Methodist Church here on the 23rd of September. And I caught up with her for this conversation, asking her to share her life story with us. We had just been talking about how the Lord opened doors for Jean, as she informed us that God had encouraged her to dream big in regard to her music. 
So, Jean, as you were sharing, the scripture that came to my mind is the one from 1 Corinthians, that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has the heart of man conceived what the Lord has in store for him. So you're saying that scripture isn't just for the future, but it's actually for now. Yeah, and we have not because we ask not. You know, just ask. What's the worst you can say? No, just ask. And often I just feel like we live at such a lower level than what we could because we don't feel worthy to ask. And, you know, he invites us into his throne room as the king invited Esther with love and confidence. And we don't have to be afraid to ask. You know, when your children ask you for a gift, if it's good for them, as within your means, you give it. And, you know, how much does it delight our Father when we trust Him to ask? That is an amazing story. A question that intrigues me is the journey then for your children. From the divorce that had taken place, the brokenness in your own life, the depression, etc., etc. Yes, the Lord's intervention in your life, the blessing of night work so that you could actually be there with your children during the day. But the impact of all of that... Where are your children at now? Great question. So, yes, they did go through the brokenness as well. And it's hard to watch that because the kids suffer. Divorce is so hard on the family. It you know, rips the children's hearts apart. But they were living with brokenness before the divorce as well. So it's just, and many times it's generational. You've got generational brokenness. So, you know, it's a whole lot of pain. But Christ, you know, but Christ and... So the one thing that I did as a mother, even in the, the midst of terrible decisions and brokenness and all kinds of yuck in the home, is we had a daily Jesus time that was something that was constant through their childhood. No matter what, even when they were teenagers, every day we met and we, we prayed together and I taught them to hear from God and the Word and just cling on to God. And so, you know, he was the connecting force in the family through it all. And the kids struggled in different ways. My oldest son became a drug addict in his teenage years and almost died of addiction to cocaine and crystal meth. He was a believer, but just struggling with so much pain. Went to the wrong places. And his story is massive. Um, he had, uh, I got my friends together and because his situation was so desperate. And so five of us prayed and fasted for him for five days when he was 16 years old. And, um, he had a massive overnight deliverance. Jesus, he says, Jesus showed up in his room on February 11th, 2005. He had an encounter with God and he woke up sober. And uh, he has gone on to live out his faith. He now has, a, he went on to get uh, two college degrees, top of his class, and is now a, an officer in the, the army and has a lovely family with three children. So, you know, God restored. And, you know, again, this is the gospel. Like, he doesn't just give us those crumbs. He makes all things new. And it's possible, no matter how broken. And then the other children have all had different roads. They saw his deliverance. So they saw the power of God. And they knew the power of God. And so I never had to preach to them. Uh, they all believe. And uh, But, again, they they all on journeys of pain. It's Some of them have made it easier on themselves than others. So I would say all of them believe. And I have uh, 
two that are well one my and my youngest daughter is falling following me in a call of ministry and music and i would say we'll end up in full-time music ministry and um, the others are not in full-time ministry but are following god in the way that they know um, i had one that's taken a little bit longer journey and has struggled a bit but she is uh she's back in church in the moment at the moment never stopped believing but um just has uh taken a little bit longer to trust the Lord, and I can understand that. And uh, But, you know, I just say, as a parent, that those seeds of the Word that you plant in your children at a young age uh, will bear fruit. The word, back, the word of God does not come back void. So we have confidence in that. You just wait, because just like in my life, um, the Lord knows what, what we need, uh, what that process looks like to fully surrender to Him. And we have to allow God to do that process and not try to force it on your children. But the story hasn't ended there. No. <laughs> the Lord has been blessing you even more than that. Yeah. So, because you've obviously found another yes. gentleman somewhere along mm-hmm. the road. Yeah. Explain how that came about. Oh, goodness. Well, that's that's a long story. I'll give you the the, the bullet points the Lord had spoken words to me that there would be a man coming and specific things about him that I would recognize um, because it was going to be a walk of faith to marry him because, uh, well, yeah, I was actually in Ireland about maybe 15 years ago, a long time ago, and a woman came up to me after a conference and said, God's spoken to me that your husband's coming from a place far away, but don't worry, he'll make a way and and she confirmed it with the scripture, and then someone else had given me a word that he'd be, uh, he would be wearing a blue military uniform and carrying a sword, and um, so those were very strange things, and I didn't wasn't sure I believed them, but um, then years later I did meet a man. He was in the Air Force as working as an officer. He was a chaplain, and he was three years out from retirement. He was living the west part of the United States, and I thought, there's no way we could ever, that would ever work, and I remembered that word. <laughs> so, long story short, a year later, we were married, and he was standing in the front of the sanctuary in his blue uniform, and when I got to the front of the church, he held out a Bible, and he said, I brought my sword. And so, you know, it's promises of God, and we actually got married, didn't live together for three years, and uh, he eventually moved to me and we are now serving leading a church together and he supports my ministry as I travel and God put a calling on his heart for my ministry which is the only way I could ever marry because I lead such a crazy life now the funny part to sort of complete the circle because he is a God of restoration for all who will receive it so I got a call from my ex-husband we had been divorced for 20 years and I got a call from him last year, and he was on the road driving trucks. And he says, I want to talk to you. He said, I was driving my truck this, you know, recently, and I started listening to a man named David Jeremiah, and he was doing Bible, Bible teaching. And uh, he said, uh, he said, I've surrendered my heart completely to God, given my life to God, and just very tearfully. I've given my life to the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm done living the way I've been living, given my life. I mean, it was just so sincere. I knew it was real. I knew he'd been radically saved. 
and he's remarried too. And this is all so long ago. And he says, um, do you know of any good churches that my wife and I could attend? <laughs> so now he attends our church and he's the drummer on the worship team that I'm leading. And we all laugh every week because it's so hysterically funny how God has the last laugh. <laughs> that is a powerful story as well. So beautiful. Jean, can you please introduce your next song for us? Thank you. This is an older song that I recorded called Everything Can Change from the Don Cook days. The, the words, everything can change, have become the theme of my ministry. And it's really um, Luke one thirty seven with God, things all things are possible, and and inviting people to ask, you know, and to believe that God can change anything, that nothing is too difficult for Him. And so I wrote that song, "Everything Can Change," about my son's transformation, but also about my own life. I'm not sure which one was more radical. So, yeah, everything can change. Welcome back to Heartlands here in Midlands 103 with me, the Reverend Nigel Gill, and my guest today is Jean Watson, and we have been listening to her life story. But one of the things that Jean states on her website is that Ireland is a place that is on her heart to minister. So I have to tell you that as an Irish person, I'm intrigued. And Jean, upon reading that, my reaction is, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about, or why... Would that be the case even? So could you explain that for us, please? Um, that is such a fun story because it doesn't make any sense, which is so God, because I think the Lord delights in doing the exact opposite of what we think he's going to do, just so, just because he can. And So I am of German descent, grew up in eastern Pennsylvania. My ancestors were German, Lutheran farmers. In this very German area, I had a strange fascination with Celtic things, and particularly Ireland. When I was in what we call ninth grade, I was probably 13, 14 years old, we were asked to do a report, a study on a nation, and I had to do Ireland. So I wrote this big report, studied all your history, all the maps, everything, and I put a cover on it. I designed this cover, green construction paper, put the map, I cut out pictures of Ireland that I found in the, my dad's National Geographic magazine and then closed it so he wouldn't see that I'd cut it all apart. And I put this whole thing together, turned it in, and uh, I got like a, a B on the report. So I threw that away and I kept this picture for the rest of my life. I still have it. I still have it. I laminated it. I couldn't throw it away. And everywhere I went... I went off to music school. I went to France. I, you know, traveled all over in my marriage. I've got this green piece of construction paper. And I don't know why, except it's this deep desire that I have to go to that place. And it's so important that if I don't go, I will have missed, I will grieve. And I knew that. Like, if I die and I don't go, I will grieve. Spirit will grieve. And I don't know why. I just have to go. And so when I, would, I started doing ministry in the UK, actually, and every time I would fly over Ireland, my heart would grieve. That's where I'm supposed to be. And the doors just were not opening into Ireland And during those early years of ministry. And one time I was in the, the whatever you call the subway in London, tube or something. I was in the tube, and I had a vision of Ireland. And it was just as clear a day I saw Ireland just lit up with tiny lights and lines connecting all the lights. And it just, I started to weep. It was like, 
and I had another vision of Ireland covered with cement. And I was like, God, how is it ever going to be made new? And God said, it can be made new. If you just pour water on cement, it breaks through, it cracks it. And then life can come up from underneath and the cement will be washed into the sea. And I just saw new life springing up. And, and again, this calling is just burning on me. Finally, I met an Irish pastor in Bradford, England. And I said, I really want to go to Ireland. I need to get there. And he called his sister. She was in the north. And she said, right. She said, I've, the Lord has already spoken to me that there's a woman coming in from the outside. So she talked to me on the phone and she said, I think you're the one. So she invited me to come. She set up an itinerary for me. She'd never met me, never seen me minister. And I just showed up. Originally, it was in Northern Ireland. I did some conferences and concerts and the Holy Spirit just lit up. It was like, this is a match on straw. This is the right voice for the right place. And the people were listening to me and responding because I don't know why, because I was, I was outside their culture. I was outside their religious boundaries. I was outside their political boundaries. They didn't know who I was, but they were listening. And so it was very effective. Eventually I got to the South. It took a few years. And when I got to the South, I knew that, you know, this was the center of it. This was the center of it. And that's where I was doing a meeting on a Monday night of all things in Dundalk. And uh, Vincent Hughes from UCB Ireland had been watching my ministry. He'd heard about these meetings where people were responding. And so they started watching and coming to some of my events. He turns up on the Monday night and watches me ministering to people from 7 o'clock p.m. to 1 a.m. the next morning, praying with people one after another, after another, after another, till I have no voice left. He comes up to me at one in the morning and he says, I've watched you pour yourself out for the Irish people. Would you like a bigger microphone? I said, yeah. So he offered me a radio sh- slot on UCB Ireland and I started doing radio for them. Um, just a short devotional encouraging message, this voice from another part of the world uh, speaking life. And since then, the Lord has just been continuing to open doors. I feel like I've been all over the nation. I want to go more places I want to see, I think uh, someone said to me this week that the little lights that I saw and the line between them, that I'm one of those lines connecting the dots in Ireland, carrying the light. I'm one of the laborers in the harvest field here. And every time I come, I just have so much joy. And that's how we know we're in the center of our calling when you feel the joy of the Lord moving through you. And um, so it's always an honor and privilege to get to serve the Irish people and love them well. This is what I find in Ireland. People always ask me what it's like. And I love ministering here because I feel that the people are very spiritually hungry. And there's a generation of people growing up that, that are tired of religion. They're tired of church. They know there's counterfeit, you know, that this is not real spirituality. And because of your spiritual roots, you're deeply spiritual people. So you don't have to explain to an Irish person that there's a spiritual realm. Very spiritually aware, mm-hmm. which is not the case in every nation. Yeah. You know, and so it's easy to speak into that already spiritual people and just give it a name and invite them into that what I experienced, that personal relationship with Jesus and just sort of, you know, refine that. But um to me it's a 
absolutely beautiful time in your history. Beautiful time in your history because people are just ready. They're so hungry. And that's what I saw in Dundalk, just waiting and waiting and waiting for hours for an encounter with Jesus. Waiting. People that had never been in church saying, I want what she has. And what I do is I just go and tell my stories. I share my testimonies. And then they decide she's either lying or she's telling the truth. If she's telling the truth, I want what she has. And it's very accessible. So I find it very easy, you know, compared to other places where I've ministered. A scripture, Jean, that is burning on your heart, or maybe even a favorite passage of scripture, what will that be? Oh, goodness. Um, It's, you know, I always come back to um, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And because, uh, you know, our walk of faith is this process of getting rid of our flesh so that he can live his life through us more and more unhindered. And um, I'm so aware in my ministry that as everything that I'm doing is just allowing him to live through me. And I was in a prison once in England, done a lot of prison ministry, and we were watching prisoners just get set free on the inside, and the chaplain leaned over and he said, isn't it wonderful to just hold the master's coat and watch him work? And I love watching people encounter Jesus through me. A lot of my ministry happens on the highways and byways, not during the concerts, as I'm on a train or an airplane or on a street corner and people are attracted to the light inside of me. I just listen in that moment, say, Father, what are you doing? How do you want to love this person through me? It's in those one-on-one encounters with people that his kingdom is coming. And uh, it's so much fun. So I just, I love that because it takes all the pressure off of me. I'm not nervous. I'm standing in front of people. Nothing to be afraid of because it's him that does the work. And my job is just to show up and uh, be responsive to his voice. Thank you very much, Jean. Thank you for sharing your story with us, sharing insights into your ministry with us and blessing us with your company today. You're very welcome. Now can you introduce your final piece of music to us, please? So this is St. Patrick's Breastplate, the ancient prayer of St. Patrick. And um, this is not, you know, the original version of the words. Um, This is an arrangement that I borrowed, shaped a little bit, but the themes are from St. Patrick's ancient prayer from the 5th century. And the prayer just captivated me as I learned the story the legends about St. Patrick and felt so deeply connected to him because our calling was similar and I'm in some ways eating the fruit of his ministry. So uh, we recorded the song and it just was the most phenomenal piece of music I had ever recorded. It was so anointed and I sent that recording to a videographer in Belfast. I said, I can't stop listening to this. Well, we ended up filming it in Northern Ireland in six locations following the footsteps of St. Patrick and and singing in the some of the places he was ministering. And the video is absolutely phenomenal. We hired professional sword fighters, what was the Game of Thrones television show, and a set designer. And it's the music video is phenomenal. You just have to watch it. It's, the whole thing is just pure theater. But the final scene, I'm standing in front of Dunluce Castle, drenched in rain, you know, and the sun setting behind the castle in real time. No, no green screen. I'm freezing. And I'm singing 
and the presence of God was so thick. And the Lord said, you think you're making a music video, but I've brought you here to sing over the land. You're singing over Ireland again, singing it back to life. So, St. Patrick's Breastplate. Midlands 183.